Hey, Nathan Foster here. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a free webinar we're putting together. It's this Thursday, September 10th, and the topic we'll explore is the intersection of prayer and action. Carolyn Ahrens will be hosting the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement, Pete Craig, and his colleague Lisa Coons will be joining us as well. Also, the run of our book club is starting soon, and the first book happens to be Pete Craig's. It's titled, How to Pray. Join the book club by September 14th in order to get the book before the reading begins. You can register for the free webinar and learn more about the book club at renovare.org. Imagine a car and the tank being on empty and you just push the car into the gas station. I was that car. Except you can't use the pump to fill the car up with. You can only use a dropper. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Pastor Juanita Rasmus. Back in 1992, she began co-pastoring a Methodist church in downtown Houston. They started with nine members, and it quickly grew into thousands. Now, I wouldn't think of St. John's as your typical large church. It's a diverse congregation, deeply and organically embedded in their community. I was able to visit a number of years back and was blown away with the way they've been able to care for those around them providing regular meals, AIDS testing, and even a dental office. Juanita is one of those amazing people who's had her hand in a number of projects. She teamed up with Tina Lawson and Beyonce to help 40,000 flood victims in the wake of Hurricane Harvey in Houston. In 2006, Juanita launched the Timonis Community Development Corporation, which recently completed over $30 million in housing development projects for the previously homeless. Pastor Juanita is an accomplished woman, but she's also honest and transparent. In her recently published book titled, Learning to Be, Finding Your Center After the Bottom Falls Out, she tells the story of her major depressive breakdown, a debilitating crash and slow recovery. When I sat down to interview her, I didn't realize just how relevant her insights are for so many of us today as we navigate the many challenges we now face. I spoke with Juanita on a video call from Indianapolis, Indiana. Always enjoy seeing you, always have. It's mutual. <laughs> you bring out my earthiness, my earthy crunchiness. Do I? <laughs> uh-huh. Like chickens. I would probably, I can't even imagine raising chickens, but now that you've said it, it's kind of like, oh, I wonder if I'd want to raise chickens. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. This place, it has a coop. And I thought, well, I like, we eat a lot of eggs. So let's, you mm-hmm. know, but you know, um, they got different personalities, and oh, I'm, don't I'm, they? I'm enjoying talking to them. So that's good. That's <laughs> good. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Juanita, 
I've heard you tell your story multiple times, and I am just, I don't know what the word is, delighted, thrilled, excited that you you wrote it, and here it is. It's in the book. (laughs) So one, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Could you give just a, a synopsis for folks of what the book's about? Sure. Learning to be, finding your center after the bottom falls out is my story of the dark night of the soul. That's the spiritual story. The psychological story or the uh, mental story was that I had uh, what was called a major depressive episode. And life had been going along. My husband and I and two daughters were a very busy, typical, probably American family. You know, kids are involved in school. My husband and I are involved in uh, ministry. So life was busy. He was good. He was rich. It was sweet. Um, there was a lot going on, though. So it was, it was really intense. And I don't think my husband nor I really recognized how intense our lives were. We had started a little church with nine members. And by this point, it had grown to about 3,000 members. And we'd never been pastors before, so we had no clue that we probably needed more staff and uh, we didn't need to be, you know, janitors and then, you know, (laughs) finish washing the toilet and then go preach the sermon, you know, and we were living like that. (laughs) And um, so things were were really moving. Um, It was the perfect place for a person like me. I'm a one on the Enneagram. That means I... Uh, I'm a perfectionist. I'm a people pleaser. I love rules and order and I can see all the wrong stuff. And then I can tell you how to fix it, you know, Um, and all of that worked for the perfect storm for a mental, emotional, spiritual breakdown. Uh, My doctor over the years has said that it was a combination of things. It was a lot of grief um, that I hadn't Uh, process within that year, two very dear friends who have been very instrumental in supporting and helping us in ministry passed away. Um, And they have been friends, you know, the kind of people who encourage you when they see your brow is a little low, you know. Um, And I had, as Thomas Merton would call it, a childhood happiness program that said, basically, you don't get mad. You stay happy and glad because I wanted to be a good little girl. And so the reality is all of the ideals and ideas that had fueled my life up to that point no longer work. And so literally one morning I got up and prepared breakfast because, uh, you know, for our family, breakfast was usually going to be the only meal we get to eat together. Um, and so I tried to make them special, you know, heart shaped pancakes, even though it wasn't Valentine's Day, <laughs> uh, sparkling apple cider in the champagne glasses from the girls, you know, that kind of thing. So I tried to make I tried to be a good mother and a good wife and a good pastor and a good friend and a good daughter and a good neighbor and a good volunteer. And the list goes on. And so what I realized was that particular morning, I didn't realize that particular morning, that particular morning, August the 27th, it was a Friday morning. I uh, fixed breakfast, called everybody in, 
We ate breakfast. And then my husband said, would you like me to take the kids to school? And I said, well, sure. Then I can put my makeup on in the bathroom mirror instead of the rearview mirror. And I know I'm not the only one who's done that. All right. <laughs> and so I kissed everybody, made sure the girls had their lunches and backpacks and out the door they went. So I go in the bathroom to put on my mascara. And as I'm standing there looking in the mirror, all of a sudden, I just feel very, very sick. And I don't really know how to explain it. It felt kind of like the flu. And in other ways, I could literally feel like the nerves in my body were frayed, like um, the cord on an electrical item, say like an iron, where the, the, where the cord goes into the socket and it's just worn. And so I could feel literally the nerves in my body like frying and sizzling. Um, I describe it in learning to be as a, a, a package of raw spaghetti. And then you apply enough pressure and it begins to pop just one piece at a time until it's all popped. Uh, to all that spaghetti just falls apart, those hard noodles that haven't been cooked yet. Um, and so I, I called our secretary at the church. And I said, you know, I'm not feeling well. Um, maybe I moved around too fast this morning. Um, so uh, would you reschedule my morning appointments and I'll be in at noon? So I hung up the phone and got in the bed certain that, you know, if I laid down, I'd feel better in a few minutes or a few hours or whatever, you know, because I felt queasy and my head felt weird. It was just just a, a total body uh, experience. Um, and so I laid down and then as though I were having an outer body experience, I saw myself get up, go over to the phone. You know, this is when we use landlines a lot. And I hit the redial button. And when she answered the phone, I said, you know, I'm really not feeling well. And, and I don't think I'm coming back. I don't know if I need to take a sabbatical or leave or something, but I'm not coming back. And I hung up the phone and I got in the bed. And I couldn't get out for months. Um, I lay in the bed and slept 18 to 20 hours every day. Uh, every day I felt as though I was falling into this dark tunnel. And I couldn't seem to find anything in the tunnel to like stop my fall. I always imagined that it was like bricks and there was mortar in between the bricks in this tunnel. And I kept thinking if I could just find some loose place in that brick Maybe I could hold on, you know, um, but every day, day in and day out, I'd be asleep and have that sensation of falling into that tunnel. Only later to find out that uh, often we talk about the spiritual experience of, of ascending. But I have found, as with the stories of many of the mystics that you descend and then you're able to ascend. And so that sense of falling was actually the experience of what was happening spiritually for me and emotionally for me. And so, yeah, that was kind of my story. How'd you come out? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Coming out literally meant after about a week or two not being able to get out of bed my husband said baby I think you need to see a doctor and uh, so I went to see a doctor and had a complete physical they ruled out diabetes which ran in my family they ruled out uh, any bile 
physical kind of diagnosis. And I was recommended to see a psychiatrist. And so I saw a psychiatrist and in short order, she um, diagnosed me as having had a major depressive episode. So I saw a psychiatrist, took medication, did talk therapy with a therapist, which I still maintain my therapist. Even now, I find that it's important in, uh, especially if you're in a profession of helping people, that you have a safe, sacred space that you can go and take care of your own emotional health. Um, so I took the meds, saw the psychiatrist, did the therapy. And I kept, you know, hoping that in six weeks when the medication was supposed to kick in, that all of this would be behind me and I'd be back bouncing and behaving, you know, <laughs> following the rules all over again. Heart-shaped pancakes. Um, Here we come. <laughs> heart-shaped pancakes. Here we come. Exactly. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, it took a while to recover. I say that at the end of about a year, I... um I had some function. I wasn't sleeping as much anymore, Um, but I wasn't ready to go back to work. It took me about three years, really, to get to the place where I could get back to work and begin to preach again and and teach and that kind of thing. So what 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 brought me out um, on the the physical side? It was certainly the assistance of those mental health professionals and some medication. but. Uh, the spirit of God uh, made it really clear to me that I was in school and I've always tried to be a good student. And so God knew just the word to speak to my spirit, to help me to notice what I was noticing. And so God began to start teaching me some things about um, what it is to have an authentic life that I had been living out of my projections of what I believed myself to be. You know, nobody ever asks you as a kid, okay, people often say, who do you want to be when you grow up? But they never ask, they, they really are saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? Right. They're really Career not wise. asking you, who do you want to be? Okay. And so I was addicted to doing. So in reality, I wasn't only dealing with a bio physical diagnosis. It was bio, physical, psycho, social. And it affected every area of my life. God was giving me in the space. And I say giving me because one of the very first words I heard as I was beginning to uh, recover. And when I say beginning to recover, I mean that I was no longer sleeping the 18 to 20 hours a day. I was starting to be able to sit up on the sofa instead of laying in bed all day. Um, And one of the things that I heard real clearly was, I'll give you the treasures out of this darkness. And at that point, I, I, I couldn't even imagine there were any treasures. But I came to find out there were numerous treasures. One of the things I realized is that I had no, I had no idea about how to set healthy boundaries. And so because I worked for God, I felt like every time somebody asked me to speak somewhere, do a retreat or a conference or uh, extra Bible study or, um, you know, whatever, the things are that people ask pastors to do. I felt like I had to do it because I work for God. You know, <laughs> I'm uh, God is paying my salary. You know, the United Methodist Church co-signed that check, but you know, <laughs> sure. Um, and so there was this addicted nature to try harder, work harder, perform, and perform well. And um, God began to help dismantle that message that I had 
created in childhood. You know, somewhere along the line, I, I was an early believer. I accepted Christ when I was probably in second or third grade. And um, but but the Christ I accepted and the God that I uh, envisioned were not the Christ and the God who were helping me um, build a life out of this depression. Um, because the the Christ was the one who emphasized me paying attention to these rules that I was living by. And so then those rules became, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do this, I don't do that. And then ultimately, as a part of the recovery, God just really clearly said to me, Juanita, you have boxed yourself in and you've boxed me out. Because my rules have become my God. Uh, my uh, sense of uh, is the Santa Claus and Judge Judy concept. Each of them has a list. They're checking it to see if I'm naughty or nice. And if I blow it, it's all over. So it wasn't enough for me to just have rules. I made rules for the rules so that I could make sure I stayed in that straight and narrow place, you know, not realizing that I was suffocating myself, killing joy. And so the way I came out was I had to realize I was being taught how to come out, which is how learning to be came about. Some of the spiritual practices that I talk about, like Lexio Divina, I had been so used to preparing 20 hours to prepare a sermon, you know, 20 hours to prepare a Bible study. Um, and all that time I was reading the Bible, but not allowing it to read me, not allowing it to confront behavior, not allowing it to come confront my belief systems about who I was or who I wasn't, not allowing it to offer uh, grace. I had very little grace for myself uh, because with all those rules become um, this pattern for creating a wonderful Pharisee. <laughs> and so I was becoming a great Pharisee. I could judge a person in a minute, see all their sawdust but not see my two by four plane, you know? And so the crash helped me to realize that my life had been built on a foundation of toothpicks and they could no longer carry the weight of the story I was telling myself and the narrative I was living with. And I'm so grateful. At the time, I, I, I don't know if I could have said I was grateful because it was such a hellacious place to be. I had no vocabulary to even really explain to my psychiatrist. So I remember one time the phone rang at home and I, I started having a panic attack, but I didn't know to name it as a panic attack. When I started to feel a little better, I started driving my kids back to school. And every day I would have a panic attack around picking them up from school that I would be killed in an automobile accident and they wouldn't know where I was, and all I felt was the, the torment that my kids would feel not knowing that I had been killed in a car accident. And so I was, um, that thought just stayed with me. And, and I didn't know to say to my psychiatrist, I, I, I'm having this constant thought that um, when I go to pick up my kids, I'm going to get killed. And so when you experience something like what I and I have no problems calling it a mental breakdown uh, because the, the the foundation of who I was fell apart. You don't have language all the time to explain uh, everything that's happening to you. So I was grateful 
um, that the spirit often would give me names for things um, and would then give me ways of being that would empower me to live with it until the brain could begin to repair itself, till therapy could help me learn about boundaries. Um, I came to realize that a no is as holy as a yes. <laughs> and that I can offer a no in integrity and I can offer a no in grace. I don't have to get mad to offer a no. I don't have to be frustrated to offer a no. I can simply say, thank you so much for considering me, but I won't be able to do that this time. I hope you'll keep me in mind for the next time. <laughs> you know, learning to set some boundaries because I was operating like superwoman. I normally wear a cuff that Rudy gave me as a silver big bracelet. And uh, I didn't put it on this morning, but often I, I'm grateful that he bought, he actually bought me two. And so sometimes I wear both of them and I use those to remind myself I am not superwoman. <laughs> if I raise my wrist up and put them in front of me and somebody shooting bullets, I will probably die. <laughs> you know, but I had this facade, this false self that seemed to suggest that I didn't need anything really but a to-do list. And if I could check those things off my list, it would make me feel worthy and valuable and important. And God would let me into heaven when I die. I have a question that is maybe totally off topic, but I'm just curious <laughs> if I can go there. I have an incredible amount of respect for women in this generation, past generation, in Christian leadership. Because you're plowing new fields. Was there pressure in that that helped contribute to it in terms of, you know, being a very public figure? Absolutely. Yeah. There, you know, the reality, there was something in everything. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And, 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 and most of it had to do with the story I was telling myself. So one of the things that I that really stands out for me as you speak about that is, yeah, you know, I've now been in ministry for 28 years. In those first years, we were winning awards for the fastest growing church in our denomination, in our district and all this kind of stuff. And so then there's this for me, because of the kind of person that I was at that point. That was like being told you're salesman of the month. And so you got to do it again next month. That's right. Yeah. You got to beat what you did last month, you know? And so while my husband and I weren't necessarily talking to each other like that, we both have come from families where uh, our families are hard workers. They're industrious. They're often holding down a job and very entrepreneurial. And so we come from this DNA that, um, you know, I'm just really surprised we didn't crash before we did, <laughs> you know, because we were highly toxic for that kind of way of being in the world. Tell me some more of the practices, the spiritual practices that were helpful oh, in, in, in this season. Yeah. I mentioned Lexio Divina because Lexio gave me an opportunity to hear the word of God speaking to the deep place of my heart. You know, um, if I could use this example, imagine a car and the tank being on empty and you just push the car into the, the, the gas station. I was that car. 
except you can't use the pump to fill the car up with. You can only use a dropper. And so I was at this very empty place for a very long time. And so the practices I used came when I could no longer worship, read scripture, the praying that I had been so accustomed to doing. I had no words. And so God was so gracious in introducing me to other ways of being with God and being with creation that didn't require me to think or to use that part of my brain. So one of the practices was that God kept asking me to go outside, go outside. And I kept thinking, God, I can barely get out of the bed and you want me to walk to the door. It seemed like asking me to do a 10K marathon or something. And so finally, one day I got up and I went to my back door and I opened the back door and there was a butterfly that was circling my back door. And then it would go into my backyard. It would fly back. It would circle the door, go back into the yard as though it was saying, come on out. Come on out. And so one of the practices began to be, I simply sat outside in nature. I didn't realize that several things were happening because of that. One, I was increasing my vitamin D, which often people who are depressed have low levels of vitamin D. The second thing was being outside was helping me not to have this kind of claustrophobic uh, cased in, boxed in feeling because I could look around and there were no walls. There was an expansive sky. Um, and so being in nature became one of the practices that began to give me life. Um, one of the other practices that I came into was breathing, doing breathing meditations. What if we do one now? How about that? Let's do it. <laughs> and so I invite people to sit up tall and straight in their seat. And if you can, put your feet flat on the floor. Turn your hands palm side up and let them rest on your thighs. And then take a deep breath through your nose. And then exhale through your mouth as though you're blowing through a straw. And again, just breathing in deeply and fully through your nose. And exhale as though you're blowing through a straw. This time when you breathe in, breathe in and imagine that breath going down into your gut and the exhale coming out of the gut as you exhale through your mouth. Breathing in God's light and love. And exhaling all chaos. Just let it go. Allowing yourself to breathe in peace. And exhaling all fear, false evidence appearing real. Just let it go. Now I invite you to close our breathing meditation by taking a deep breath and making an audible ah as your side. Breathing in deeply and fully and exhale ah. Ah. Let's do a second one. Breathe in deeply and fully and exhale ah. 
Oh, oh heck, uh, it's so good. Why not do a third one? <laughs> so breathe in deeply and fully and exhale off. Oh. And so one of the things that happened for me is that the breathing became a way, along with the medication, to help me manage my anxiety. My anxiety was through the roof. And so that practice of doing deep breathing became a way of helping me to settle in and settle down. Now, two other practices that I didn't ask for, but that I got were silence and solitude. And I always love the way the Renovari Bible defines silence and solitude. Silence, it says something about, um, in essence, clearing ourselves so that we can be free from the noisy chatter and clatter of the world. And then the solitude was about creating a space where we can be found by God. And so all those days of me being at home alone, uh, my family was, you know, at school, the girls were at school, Rudy was at the church. And then they, of course, came home every evening, but they gave me a lot of silence and a lot of solitude. And in those spaces, God just began to, over time, speak to me and I could hear. I would would hear out of this very deep well of knowing, you know. Um, So those are some of the practices. There are uh, other practices. I remember uh, one of the things, (laughs) one of the practices that um, God gave me. I went to my, I had an appointment with my psychiatrist this particular day. And so she asked me, uh, she said, Mrs. Rasmus, what do you want? And I thought for myself, what do you mean, what do I want? I want to feel like I did before, you know, Um, (laughs) and, and remind me to come back to that point. But when she asked me what I wanted, Nathan, it dawned on me, I didn't have a clue of what I wanted. Because my life had been so much about performance and doing the next thing on the list that I had discontinued cultivating any want tos. And so in learning to be, I talk about it. And so when I got home, I was so distressed by her asking me that question. It was like, what do I want? and, And I had no clue. Nothing came up for me. And so I I remember walking in the house and I sat on my sofa and I said, God, I I don't know what I want. And I remember the scripture said that God would give us the desires of our heart. But then it dawned on me, you better have some desires. And so what God invited me to do as a practice, I took a file folder and on the tab I wrote want to's. And so God began to show me like when I get the junk mail, don't throw it away right away. Look at it. Are there were, were there any words or images that kind of called to me? And so if so, put them in the want to folder. And so over time, I put a picture of a, 
a person skydiving. I put a picture of a person in a hot air balloon. I put a picture of somebody snorkeling. I put a picture of people traveling. I put a picture of this family around the big table having a family meal. So I began to put these things in the file folder. And then something started to happen in me. Some desire started to grow. It was very small at first, but it was like seeing a firefly in the pitch dark. And it was this little firefly of hope as I began to cultivate these want to's and then look at them. Not every day, but usually a couple of times a week because I'd have to open the file to put something else in it. And then I would see those pictures. And what I didn't realize at the time was that God was using those images to help um, release endorphins, to help increase my awareness of the possibilities of what my life could look like. Um, So those are a couple of the practices. There are a number of practices. I tried to um, add a practice for each chapter just to give people an opportunity to recognize that. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll use this as an example, the examine. The examine was one of the practices God uh, invited me to use to ask myself, even in the midst of the depression, what gave me life today? What gave me joy today? What, what gave me hope? You know, uh, one of the things I realized is that so much passes us because we simply didn't see it out of our busyness. So as an example, one day, um, one of the things that gave me life was somebody called me on the phone and they just wanted to encourage me, you know, and I thought, wow, that was really kind of them to call me because oftentimes and the church is probably the worst offender of this. We avoid people who have mental health diagnoses out of our own anxieties and fears out of our own I think sometimes not only ignorance lack of knowledge but also I think we all have an awareness that there's a very fine line a filament between sanity and insanity and some of us may even fear that being near someone who has lost it mm, contagious might be contagious exactly exactly so the examine invited me to ask what gave me the life, uh, life that day to notice to just pay attention i didn't have to do anything with it just notice it mm-hmm. and then be thankful just say thank you thank you for letting that person call but also to notice what wasn't life giving to notice the things that bugged me uh that the things that um were uncomfortable that were I always say that weren't life-giving. And so as I began to notice those things, the invitation became again, thank God for the things that were life-giving, thank him for the things that weren't. The main thing I'm thanking him for is the reality to be able to see these things because I hadn't noticed them before. (laughs) Uh, And then to see on the things that weren't giving me life, what, what change might I make? I had to learn how to name my emotions. You know, I had grown up in an era where you could be mad, happy, glad, and sad. And if you're mad, you better get glad or you're going to be given something to be mad about. (laughs) I didn't realize there were hundreds of feeling words that under anger could be disappointment, 
could be resentment, could be uh, feeling distraught and you know nothing else to do than to lash out. So I began uh, by keeping a, uh, I printed out a feeling list and I put it in my journal so that when I journaled, I now began to use, I would write every feeling word that seemed to apply to what I was experiencing because I had not been used to naming feeling words. And so this became very helpful, especially later on, uh, because in the beginning stages, that was too much to do. You know what I like about some of this is that for many people, when they think of spiritual practices, it's this kind of, okay, got to kind of gear up and I'm, you know, pouring something out. And this really sounds like putting yourself in a position to receive. Passive is not really the word, but. It was like flow. I was just allowing myself to be open to the flow. I think for many people, when they're struggling, the idea of, hey, this is potentially an opportunity to, right, go follow that butterfly, mm-hmm. do some examine, mm-hmm. um, exactly. is, is not necessarily on, on, on people's radar. Your work is so relevant today in the sense that whether we're aware of it or not, there is this kind of collective... I don't know what the word is, trauma or anxiety Mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, there's just, and, and so, um, what do you recommend for folks who find themselves struggling today, particularly when we have a a judgment against mental health stuff spiritually, right? That, well, no, you know, this must not be a good enough Christian or, you know, praying enough or something. Haven't been praying enough. Haven't been reading scripture (laughs) enough. All those crazy ideas. All right. Uh, And I say those are crazy ideas. Um, There were a few people who suggested that kind of thing. And I thought to myself, now, would they have suggested that to a cancer patient or to a person who had a heart attack? So if you wouldn't say it to them, don't say it to a person who's had a mental health diagnosis. Because the reality is we all have uh, our existence in a human body that has a mind, that has skin and bones. And when we don't uh, and even sometimes when we, we think we are caring well for those, they can come under disrepair. Um, but for people who are experiencing COVID-19 right now, the thing I've been talking about a lot is having a mental health protocol. You see, we have a physical protocol. We know to wash our hands. We know that it's best to wear a mask. We recognize and we've been told that social distancing is important. Um, but a mental health protocol Uh, invites us to pay attention, and I'll say it this way, to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Notice what you're noticing. You know, I wouldn't recommend anybody watching constantly negative news right now because it's not helping our energy. Um, One of the things I would say is pay attention to where there is life for you in this. Um, I remember when we went to go and get groceries my husband, the first few weeks of, of COVID-19, uh, Rudy said, uh, could you put together the list? And then we went to the grocery store. I always give him the list because I really don't like shopping, grocery shopping, clothes shopping, no kind of shopping. It's really not me. And so he walks in with the list. He goes for the food and I go for the flowers. <laughs> this particular store had live orchid plants in it. And so I said, More so than food, I need plants around me. I need blooming plants. And so I bought an orchid. It was fuchsia colored. It was beautiful. I put it on my desk so that I could see it every day. And so 
Notice what you notice so you notice what you need. I have a container of bubbles on my desk. I figured it might be good for me to entertain my inner one eater during this time. Make it fun. So I've got some coloring books and I've got some paint by numbers for adults. I bought a set of jacks. (laughs) And I decided that I could either make this another kind of dark night of the soul (laughs) or I could see this as an opportunity to allow my inner child to be cared for because you see our inner child is with us during COVID-19 whether we like it or not as long as we're breathing there's an inner child in us who's wondering will we care for them or will we ignore them will we make things as safe as possible for them will we Maybe take a little time to read or take a little time for a walk. Take a little time to just nurture our inner need to be nurtured. And so I would say pay attention. Be aware of the story you're telling yourself and be aware of the stories you're letting the world tell you. Monitor that stuff. You know, if you're noticing that when you watch the news, you're getting anxious, what about cutting back? Give yourself permission to watch five minutes instead of 55 minutes. Notice what you're noticing. I think that's the biggest thing we can do is to just tune in. Where's God in that? Oh, my gosh. God is all in that. The scripture says, I think it's Acts 17, 28. In God, we live and move and have our very being. What my crash taught me was that who I am was not rooted in what other people expected of me. It wasn't rooted in what I saw as myself. It wasn't rooted in what I didn't want others to see about me, like that I was judgmental and that I was always uh, judging people and sending them into some kind of hell that I had no ability or authority to create. But when you live with rules, you become judgmental. And I didn't recognize that. And so... What I came to realize, and I I use a tool called Jahari's window. I draw a four-paned window pane. One of those panes is the me I see. The other pane is the me others see. The third pane is the me I don't want you to see. But the fourth pane is the pane we spend, or I prefer to say, invest the least amount of time in. And that's the me that God sees. You see, we invest so much time masking and hiding and projecting and presuming and presenting and creating this facade about who we are so that we can be accepted. And yet, if we would invest time just being, whatever that is, you know, for one of my daughters, her way of being is that during this, she cooks because it centers her and it grounds her. I have another daughter who... um, Her way of being is that she's involved in a couple of uh, Facebook groups and they chat and encourage each other and support each other. So notice what is giving you life and do more of. It's not that hard. It's not. But we do have to stop, take a deep breath, observe, and then move forward. Juanita? This is so helpful. Thank you. That was Juanita Rasmus. 
Again, her book is titled Learning to Be, Finding Your Center After the Bottom Falls Out. You can find more information about her book, watch her TED Talk, and sign up for her newsletter at JuanitaRasmus.com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort which offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.